Welcome to the Renegade Inc. podcast. This is the audio version of our weekly talk show hosted by Ross Ashcroft. Welcome back to Renegade Inc., the show which allows us to think differently. Uh, we're here at Sunday Papers Live, and before we go back to the conversation with Steve Keane, we uh, popped out and we asked a few people to gauge some temperature, what they thought about the global economy, the UK economy, and also economists in general. I think it's stagnating as a result of Brexit and the wider global uncertainty that we're facing. It's a bit rank, but I think it's very hopeful. Um, I am very positive about the future for Britain. The UK economy at the moment is in a state of flux and uncertainty. The global economy right now uh, looks to be maybe getting close to a bubble. A lot of people are just getting by and then there's also a lot of people who are really struggling um, and that's the people that we seem to be failing the most at the moment. To have optimism you have to have something concrete to be optimistic about which we don't have. Do I trust economists? Uh, I trust them when it comes to money more than myself. I'm a lawyer, I don't really trust anyone. I don't think economists are evil. Uh, that, uh, I think they are probably really intelligent people trying to grapple with a very complex thing. There might be two or three economists that can spot a bubble, but they're not going to tell us who they are and they're going to cash out before it happens. We've got all the historical context. We know we're not in great shape, but we're here in this room today. The, the revolution starts here. How many people in this audience here, uh, politicians say, you have to live within your means. We need to fix the roof while the sun's shining. Uh, and what they're doing implicit in that is comparing a household budget to a national budget. Have you heard that? No? Yes. yes. So, Steve, why should we not be comparing a household or personal budget to the budget of the whole economy? Well, I want to ask the question, first of all, who thinks that's a sensible perspective? The government should be saving money. Does that sound sensible? Yeah. Okay. okay. So, well, that's mixed. There is no, a bit of no here, a bit of yes. And, yeah. and here, do, is it a sensible idea that the government should be sa uh, saving money? Which means the government should be taxing more than it spends. That sounds sensible? putting money away for a rainy day, et cetera, et cetera. One shaking hand over there. Okay, well, myth buster. Okay, what we do when we do that is we project what we do at the individual level to the social level. Let's say your income is 200 pounds a year and your spending is 200 pounds a year. So you're making zero, you're saving nothing. And you go, I want to save money, so I'm going to earn the same amount that 200 pounds earn, but I'm going to spend 10 pounds less. Now I'm going to divide you into three groups. This side of the room is what I'm going to call uh, Tom. This bit is Dick, and that bit's Harriet, Tom, Dick and Harriet. And Tom earns 100 pounds from Dick and 100 pounds from Harriet and spends the same on them. And then decides, I'm going to save money now, I'm going to spend 10 pounds less. Now what that means is you're spending 190 pounds, you spend 95 pounds each on Dick and Harriet, and they still spend 100 pounds on you. What's happened to Dick and Harriet? You've earned five pounds less from Tom. You're now negative five, each of you. See, Tom's attempt to save money has reduced the total income by 10 pounds. And they have been negatively affected yeah. by and that. and if you keep on doing it, the end process of that is zero, okay? So, so, it, it, so and the government doing that? Yeah, the government doing it as well is going in the same direction. The only way we can all save money is if one of us doesn't. If you want to have the aggregate savings, increasing the amount of money in your bank accounts every year, there's got to be someone somewhere who's doing the opposite. Because in the overall distribution, it goes, if you save, it is directly equal to somebody else's loss of income. So if the government's saving is taking money out of the economy. Yeah. 
You need, in other words, you, if you have a warehouse, and imagine this is a warehouse now full of grain, and you're all trying to save part of it for yourself, you can only save it by taking somewhere else inside the warehouse. The only way we can get more money in this room is somebody's dumping it into the room, producing it externally. Now, there's two people or two organisations that can produce money in a capitalist economy. One is the banks, but for every dollar they give you, they record in another building, you owe them a dollar. So there's no increase in your aggregate wealth if you borrow off a bank. You can get a nice bubble out of it, and you guys wrote a butte bubble to 2007, but you can't accumulate more net worth. But the government can do the same thing. So if the government's dumping money inside this warehouse every year, it might land on you as a welfare recipient or a contractor or whatever else. It doesn't come with a matching debt for you. So that means you can save that money. The amount of money in the warehouse goes up. But if you want the government to save money, it's saying, let's take money out of this, let's take money out of this warehouse and we're going to try to save at the same time. It's frankly impossible. So the austerity narrative... It's negative. It's the exact opposite of what a government should be doing. So what if you were sitting uh, in number 10 Downing Street um, with whoever... I'd be, I'd be working out how much money the government should create each year then and spending you... more than I take back in taxation to create that money to let the rest of you try to save. But if you try to save, if the government doesn't do that and you try to save, what you are doing is reducing income. And if the government joins you and does the same thing, it's reducing income even faster, which is why this economy has come down so much since 2009. Austerity's caused the decline in GDP compared to what it could have been. How many uh, people, you just mentioned that banks create money. Um, a recent survey of British politicians, 90% uh, didn't know where money came from. Uh, and more worryingly, I think 63% thought that the Royal Mint created money. Right? Uh, now, <laughs> terrifying, right? Um, how many people, just again by way of a sort of cheer or a murmur, uh, how many people know that banks create money out of thin air? Yeah, you see? It's a fairly, fairly, it's a still a murmur, it's a minor murmur. What we have, there's all these dilemmas where we're fighting over saying there's not enough money for this, there's not enough money for that. But money's created by double entry bookkeeping. It's a bit like saying there's not enough scores at Lords. It might be because the team's doing badly, but there's no limitation on how many numbers you can record against a batsman. So we're actually mistaking the shortage of the easiest thing in the world to create, which is money for a shortage of the physical resources we're trying to create, which you need money in the first place to make. Why have the media then not been able to get their head around this narrative and ask more pointed questions to politicians, elected leaders, and most importantly, central bankers, to yeah. say, hang on, why are you doing this? Why are you putting us through that such needless pain? It comes back to that whole issue of what economists have learned, what they believe, because what they teach becomes our general um, Belief. For example, who woke up before sun sunrise this morning? Anybody? No, you didn't. The sun doesn't rise. It rotates. We are rotating on our axis around it. We still call it sunrise. Does anybody here believe the sun actually orbits the Earth? Neoclassical economists do. <laughs> Not a single Ptolemaic economist in sight. But we still use the terms. Now, 500 years ago, if I said the Earth rotates and, we, we, and the sun, we're spinning around the sun and rotating while we do it, I'd be a madman. Most people believed that the sun rose and set. So in economics, exactly the same thing has happened. We've absorbed this way of thinking. We believe in what I call Ptolemaic economics. And then if you come along and challenge it with real world stuff, you're like that stupid madman Copernicus, okay? <laughs> and that's how you get treated. This madman, you know, he does have an inquisition. So that's the situation for people to say, realistically, banks create money, 
Realistically, the economy is not in equilibrium. Realistically, we're not all the God and Mos Nostradamus. We say all this stuff. We get treated as the lunatics, which is why I've written a satirical cartoon to have a go back at the bastards. <laughs> so they think you're a nutter? They think, they think people who talk about realistic stuff are nutters. Okay, so in economics, my group, which says, look, realistically, banks create money, and that changes the whole deal of macroeconomics. Realistically, the economy is never in equilibrium, so we've got to model it as a dynamic non-equilibrium process. Realistically, we have financial crises. They're not exogenous shocks. We get treated as the nutters. They get treated as the, as the, as the rational ones. It's bloody insulting after 45 years. <laughs> I can feel your pain. There's a, a, some graphs circulating. Can everyone, has everyone had a look at them? Uh, it's an it's a, a eye-watering and startling graph. How did you see 2007 coming? You were looking at something different to everybody yeah, else. What yeah. were you looking at? I was looking at level of private debt. Private debt. Private debt and the change in private debt every year. So the change in, and the volume of private debt as opposed to government or public. That's right. Well, they're obsessing about government debt and completely ignoring private debt on the basis that it's rather like saying it's an act between consenting adults that has no impact upon anybody else. That, that's their model, effectively, that what we have in banking is banks are introduction agencies like Ashley, Ashley Madison's who introduce somebody who wants something to somebody else who wants to deliver it and charges the fee for the introduction. That's their model. The real world is they're a bit like the pimps down on um, Charing Cross, whatever it is. Um, you know. I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> so I'm, I'm selling, the, selling the logic. But that, that, that picture completely inverts the importance of worrying what banks do. Right. So when you do, I look at, they, they ignore it, they say it doesn't matter, I say it's crucial. I looked at it, saw it coming, they didn't look at it, they didn't see it coming. Is anybody else uh, astonished at the rise in uh, private debt since about 1984, a famous Prime Minister came and the big bang was unleashed uh, in the city? Uh, yeah. Look at that graph. Uh, amazing, right? Uh, and this is the problem, isn't it? Mm. That's, where the, that's where the apparent wealth has come from for the last 30 years, and that's why the economy fell over in 2010. It had nothing to do with Labor's spending. Labor's spending was caused by the collapse in private credit. As we wind up, uh, let's go around the world. Who, uh, when's the UK, when's the next crash? And you have to be to the date, to the time, the date, and everyone's gonna hold you to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tuesday the 13th of uh, God knows which month. No, UK are classified as one of the walking dead of debt. You've already had the crisis. You see that you'll see on the graph the debt level peaked in 2010. You've come down a bit, but you're still carrying three times the average debt level you had back before Maggie Thatcher. You're going to be having a little boom, a little slump, a little boom, a little slump indefinitely, a bit like Japan has been doing for the last quarter century. The countries that are going to have a crisis are those that borrowed their way through it, private debt borrowing, not public, and that's particularly China, but also the next biggest country, South Korea, Canada, Australia, Belgium, Norway, Sweden, between nine and 16 countries, I think are likely to have one. And, and why are they going to crash, just to find? Because they did exactly what, we, what England and the UK, America did before the crisis. They borrowed up big in a speculative bubble, normally housing bubbles. The increase in debt each year, I define as credit. Credit was such a large part of GDP, the demand was huge, economy is booming. You get to a point people won't take any more debt. A lot of projects fall over as well. People stop borrowing and that entire segment of demand evaporates. In America's case, that was 15% of GDP. It went from plus 15 to minus five. So a 20% fall in the level of total demand in one year. Incredible. Uh, as we wrap up, we've got a few questions from the audience. If you're in a position to buy a house now and you're British, would you? <laughs> They're definitely overvalued, but it's whether there's going to be a crash in the prices, I'm, I wouldn't say it's, li it's likely here. 
much more so likely in Canada, Australia, and South Korea to have a house price crash. Fine. Uh, yeah, great. Cheer up, everyone. I'm just trying to work out how to end this on a positive note, because the, the next question is, can Trump and Brexit be explained through economics? And that makes me want to run out the building, frankly. It, it can, because a huge part of the distrust of experts is built up that lets somebody like Trump get elected. It's distrust of economists, which is justified. But we've passed it across to distrusting all sorts of experts, including climate scientists, which is a fallacy. So it is, I think you can explain it. If neoliberalism had worked, you wouldn't be, you would, you'd be here listening to somebody extolling the virtues of the market economy, not somebody criticising it. So we had 40 years of experience, it doesn't work, and that's why people say it's not working, like Trump at one extreme and Jeremy Corbyn at the other are now serious electoral candidates, whereas they wouldn't have been 10 years ago. Does anyone have a burning question which we'll come to? Sir? I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the effect of automation on uh, macroeconomics over the next 20 years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, have we got another question? I'll handle that one. We're getting to the stage we don't need humans at all to control computer machinery. And at some point, there'll be no need for labour. And the only way labour's got a share in the wealth of the economy for the last one and a half centuries is effectively blackmail. You want us to get, operate those machines, you've got to pay us. Now, if the machines don't need us to operate anymore, we have two alternatives, the Hunger Games at one extreme or democratising the wealth from machinery at the other. You can guess which one I go for. As with an optimist, let's wait and see. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a, a, an interesting ride. Steve Keane. Really well done. Thank Great you. work. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Renegade Inc. podcast. If you'd like to watch the episode or browse more of our content, you can find us at renegadeinc.com. Renegade Inc. was produced by Megan Ashcroft and Olivia Lebrun. Renegade Inc. is a Renegade Inc. production in association with Motherlode.